0: The following sermon audio is from the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about the Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net.
1: We're in Hebrews today, Hebrews chapter 8, reading from the ESV, verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, and from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God.
0: Good morning. Before we get started this morning... just spend a few moments in prayer together (coughs) our great and merciful God we just want to pause and thank you Um, our lives go fast they're busy we can keep up a frenetic pace and we too often forget how you provide for us every day how you protect us not only from the things out there, but you protect us from ourso- ourselves as well. You guard us from temptation. You carry us through. When we fail, you pick us back up again. You've provided for all of our needs. That's not to say that there aren't pressures in our lives, but when we look back, we see your faithfulness over the years. And those of us who have walked with you for some time, we can look back and see that we are not the same. You have been at work in us. You have been faithful to bring us further along and make us more like Jesus. So, Lord, we, we want to celebrate that goodness this morning. We don't take it lightly. We don't overlook it. We are so happy to belong to you. We So thankful for your presence in our lives. And, Lord, we want to pray this morning for Jen Hill as she uh, faces upcoming surgery for cancer. Uh, we ask that there would be no more hiccups. We ask that particularly they'd find an anesthesia that she's not allergic to. We pray that you'd give the doctors wisdom and that this procedure would get done quickly so as to remove the cancer from her body. Lord, we pray not only for her health, but we pray for her heart in the midst of this, that she would have confidence as your child, that she would be secure in your care, that she would know that none of your purposes for her life can be thwarted. Lord, we also pray for Nancy Formasano in the nursing home and we ask that you would cheer her heart this morning. We pray for upcoming doctors' visits for her that they would be fruitful and helpful. And we pray for her just like we pray for ourselves that every day she would wake up and believe the gospel that she would see the good news clearly that would be what she hangs her hope on lord as we turn to your word now we ask that you would remind us of your good promises and your character as our great high priest yes this in christ's name amen one of my seminary professors like to relay the story of when he was away at cambridge Pursuing his Ph.D. And he had to be separated for a significant amount of time from the woman he loved. I don't remember if it was, um, if they were married already or if uh, it was just his fiance. But, you know, this was long before the days of internet chat. So all they had was phone calls once a week because those international phone c- cards were expensive, if anyone remembers that. Um, so they had one phone call, and it, it couldn't be too long because of the price And they they longed for those phone calls. And they also dreaded those phone calls because they were over too quickly. And then you had to wait a whole other week. Now, as part of the the woman's routine of dealing with this distance, she she would often go to uh, a certain place that had been meaningful to both of them. And she'd take a picnic lunch once a week. And she'd just sit there and reflect on the past and, and also dream about their future life together. And uh, sometimes at night, the sorrow would just be overwhelming. She missed him so much. She just wanted to be with him. And so she'd hold a framed picture of him and and just cry herself to sleep. Now, obviously, this is a a touching portrait of the devotion of a young couple. But the point of the story came with where my professor went next. He he would say, imagine if I moved back from England. Imagine that I was done with my Ph.D. and ready to start our life together but my fiancé had maintained the same routine. What if he would find her going to their meaningful spot alone still? What if he would try to spend time with her and she would say, that's okay, I have your picture, I've gotten used to it. And he'd say, yeah, but, but can't we talk? And she'd say, sure, sure, you know, there's a phone booth down the block, why don't you go there, give me a call, it'll be just like the old times. Now you can imagine how upsetting that situation would be, and we would all consider this woman's behavior kind of twisted and and straight-up ridiculous. Why would you cling to a long-distance relationship when the real person is there in your very presence? And that's exactly what it's like when we cling to religious types and shadows mere long distance pictures and echoes instead of entering into the fullness of God's presence through Jesus Christ. The first recipients of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians, and they wondered if life might be easier if they just went back to the Judaism that they'd grown up with. Um, You know, their Jewish identity was generally accepted in the public. But this way of Jesus thing, it was just it was too abstract and it seemed to do away with some meaningful traditions. And so, this letter to the Hebrews was written to challenge these Christians. To ask them, do you even realize the fullness in which Jesus has brought you to God? Why would you cling to the the empty, breaking frames of what has been gloriously filled out in the person of Jesus Christ? So the verses we'll look at today are at the very center of the book of Hebrews. And you can see that um, with the first verse there. Now the point in what we are saying is this. The point is this. We have such a high priest. So the point of the whole book, look at Jesus. See how perfect he is to meet the true needs of our souls, to bring us to God. And this theme of Jesus as high priest, it it started way back in chapter 4, if you remember. It's been building, and now at the start of chapter 8... It's presented most plainly and concisely for us. And up till now, we've been thinking mostly about the credentials of Jesus, what makes him such a unique fit for this office that we need. Now we're going to turn a corner and look at his actual ministry, his actual priestly work. We do have such a high priest, and we're going to see that in his ministry, Jesus, as compared with any other priest, any other spiritual guru, Jesus serves with a better posture, verse 1. We'll see that Jesus serves in a better location, in verses 2 and 4 and 5. We'll see that Jesus serves with a better sacrifice. He brings a better sacrifice. And we'll see that Jesus serves through better promises. So the first aspect for us to note about Jesus as our great high priest is that he ministers from a better posture than any human priest ever could, any earthly priest. He serves with a better posture. Well, that sounds kind of strange. Our minds might be racing to, like, well, does he use, like, a posturepedic bed, or does he always be sure to stand with his shoulders back? What's this talk about posture? What I'm getting at is simply the fact that Jesus is sitting down. He's not standing up. If you remember... Um, Well, we read right here in verse 1 that uh, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's what we're talking about. That may seem like kind of a so-what observation, but consider everything that it implies. The Jewish high priests running around in the temple, they did not have seats. There were no seats in the temple for the priests because they didn't have the luxury of sitting, not until the, the day of work was done. And that's just the point. With Jesus, the work is done. You remember chapter 1, verse 3. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And chapter 10 is going to unpack this even more. And there we'll read that by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus doesn't need to stay on his feet like the Jewish priests, continually slaughtering more and more animals to cover the sins of the people because sufficient sacrifice has been made. No other sacrifice needs to be made ever again. This is a difference between this true religion and shadowy, long-distance religion. Shadowy, long-distance religion has worshipers that must keep doing Because even their priests must keep doing rituals in order to make things right. So if there's new sin, then the mediator figure needs to kill an animal or give absolution or say a specially worded prayer or give communion before you can be right with God again. Not so with Christ. By a single offering, he made you right before God for all time. This is true even as you're still being sanctified, even as you're still growing in your ability to kill sin by the Holy Spirit and then to become the person who you are in Jesus. Even in the midst of our sin, his once and for all time action on your behalf is all you need. There's endless grace for you there as you trust in that finished work. There's no loss of acceptance by God when you sin. There's no need for you to clamor for, for someone, for, for a priest somewhere standing on earth to do something for you because you've got a priest who's sitting in heaven. But the fact that he's sitting in heaven, though it does mean that your sin is fully atoned for, he doesn't need to be busy making sacrifice, it doesn't mean that his role on your behalf is done. In the ancient world, if you're seated on the right hand of a king, then you're the, you're the most important person in the court. You're the prestigious one who has the king's ear. And so Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, he's in the ideal spot to keep interceding, to keep advocating for us, to keep applying the effectiveness of that finished sacrifice to our needs and our struggles today. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we read um, in chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The fact that Jesus is sitting down in heaven, that means that you have open access to God. You have no need to feel like, well, I've got to earn his attention or his favor. No, Jesus is there. Jesus is the priest on your behalf with a better posture. Second, we see that Jesus' ministry happens in a better location. Verse 2 calls Jesus a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So his ministry is for the benefit of us here on earth, but God is in heaven. And so Jesus' ministry on our behalf happens there. And one of the shortcomings of the old covenant sacrificial system is that it took place in structures that were built with human hands, even King Solomon, the great temple builder, admitted the limitations of this. He said, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? He knew that his temple, every earthly temple, would have to be consecrated because it was being built with sinful and finite human hands. Um, Acts chapter 7 reinforces this truth. Um, I think we have a slide for that verse, maybe. Yeah, there we go. So, this is Stephen's speech in Acts 7. He says, he reiterates this truth, that it was Solomon who built a house for God, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So, Despite the insufficiency of a man-made temple, the Old Testament saints trusted and God displayed that he would mercifully meet us there in this sort of a placeholder of a place. That's what we'll call the temple, a placeholder of a place. But the placeholder place didn't replace the place where final atonement needed to take place. Verse 4 goes on to say that the the priests who offer gifts according to the law of Moses, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, when it says tent, that means the tabernacle in the wilderness, the the initial movable structure that was the pattern for the later permanent temple. Uh, When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So what it's suggesting is that the pattern in which the Old Covenant tabernacle and then later the temple were, construct- were constructed, that, that reflects some reality of what truly needed to happen in the heavenly places. And the atonement that Jesus made for the sin of his people, it happened in that heavenly reality. Did you ever think about that? Why didn't Jesus, why, you know, the cross where the sacrifice happened, that wasn't inside the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't need to go to that temple. What he was doing was happening in the heavenly temple. And this is a warning for us not to think that we need sacred spaces in order to enjoy God's favor and God's power. We could be meeting anywhere this morning, right? We could be meeting in a field or in a dirty basement or in like a cheap bar with sticky floors from the night before. It just doesn't matter. If, if we're worshiping God in spirit and in truth, we can be anywhere together. Earthly places for worship, they may be beautiful in a way that reminds us of God's beauty. That's good. They might be helpfully quiet so that we can pray. That's good and useful, but no cathedral or chapel or shrine or holy city can bring you closer to God than Jesus already has. The work that Jesus has already done Was in the only holy place that matters. Now, this fact that earthly temples and tabernacles were meant to point to the reality of the holiness of heaven where sacrifices really have to be accepted, that fact is going to be spoken about even more in chapter 9. So, for now, we've just kind of had a teaser to point out that Jesus ministers in a better location than any earthly priest ever could. Third, we see that Jesus offers a better sacrifice. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And that's really all that is mentioned about sacrifice in these verses before us. um, That our great high priest did have something to offer, just like all priests have to have something to offer. In chapter 10, it's stated more clearly that we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all that's the offering that's a sacrifice now over thousands of years the Jewish sacrificial system had uh, it's um, it showed one of the purposes was to show that sacrifices had to be perfect in the book of Leviticus all these different animal sacrifices are being prescribed and, and unpacked and one phrase that keeps showing up again and again is without blemish without blemish In order for the sacrifice to be accepted by God, it had to be perfect, without blemish, in order to cover over sin. And yet, in another way, in an ultimate way, it was actually impossible for the blood of even blemishless animals to cover the sin of humans. It was all a picture that was pointing to the coming Messiah, whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God. Some of you read about that in life group this week the Lamb of God, the only human without blemish who could offer himself as a substitute for the eternal death that we had incurred. So Jesus has offered this better sacrifice, and it was accepted on behalf of everyone who had come to God through faith in this high priest. So then do you see what utter garbage it is when we try to come to God with lesser sacrifices? Whether it's, it's a ritual that you want some other sort of mediator figure to do in order to, to try to vouch for you before God, or whether it's you, yourself, trying to offer something as your own priest in order to please God, that's not without blemish. So it's appalling to a holy God. It's, it's kind of like a bribe to God. If, if you're trying to say, you know, I'll give you this, I'll, I'll do this, if you'll just accept me, if you'll just... Provide for me in a certain way. Well, you're trying to negotiate something needlessly with God and it's offensive to him He doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want something from you as a sacrifice to earn his pleasure He wants every part of you. He wants all of you to come to him through the sacrifice. that's already been completed in Jesus Now if you're anything like me it's actually pretty easy to default into a mindset where, well, God will be more pleased with me if I clock more hours in prayer or if I attend certain things faithfully or if I make certain sacrifices for him. Well, then, then, you know, I'll be on God's good side. If I give up this, if I perform in this way, maybe he'll release certain blessings. And it's kind of like we're at the counter of heaven and there's this huge payment that needs to be made. And we just ignore the blank check and the pen that's in front of us. And instead, we're reaching into our pockets and pulling out, like, nasty coins with bits of lint and 10-year-old chewing gum. And we're just slapping those up on the counter. And it it can never add up. Do you see that? The sacrifices we bring never add up. They don't need to. That's the good news. You've been given endless wealth through the sacrifice of righteous Jesus in his body on the cross. So it's time to start living by faith out of his righteousness instead of sadly trying to muster up your own to impress God. Now, our last and our biggest point for consideration this morning is that our high priest Jesus ministers out of better promises. see this in verses 6 through 13. And in some ways, this isn't even really a fourth point. It's kind of an umbrella point because it, it encapsulates everything we've talked about even so far. It was promised that Jesus would come as the better priest with the better posture and location and sacrifice. All of that is part of the promised new covenant. New covenant. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a, a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So this is saying that Christ's ministry is unparalleled because just like Moses and the Jewish priests served as middlemen between God and mankind um, in the Old Covenant, similarly, Jesus is the middleman to bring us to even better promises from God. Okay, let's stop and consider for a moment. What do we make of this word covenant that appears in the text? seems like a, a religious or kind of old-timey legal term. What does it mean? Covenant is an agreement or a contract that two parties establish to show how they're going to relate to each other. It's the formal terms of the relationship. Now, there are a number of examples of covenants with promises in the Bible. Uh, the big one is in, in Deuteronomy um, with the law, the Mosaic law, um, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. God tells the people if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God by walking in his ways keeping his commandments and statutes and rules then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So the Bible is a book of covenants between God and people and in one sense there are only two covenants and they correspond to the Old and New Testaments in your Bible. But in another sense, the Old Testament is made up of a number of progressively building promises. with Noah, with Abraham, with the people of Moses' day, with David. So the point that's being made here is that Jesus, our high priest, came with better covenant promises than even those patriarchs and prophets had known. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless... There would have been no occasion to look for a second. We need to be careful here not to read this as if God made a mistake on the first covenant. and, And so then he brings in Jesus for try number two. No. Scripture says that Jesus was appointed as our sacrifice from before the foundation of the world. God had a purpose in having the old covenant play out the way it did. Without that, we wouldn't see the new covenant rightly. We would probably have far too high a view of ourselves. We would have far too low a view of God. We wouldn't feel our need of him as that first covenant was designed to make us feel. And so we never want to talk about the law or the old covenant as if, well, that was something bad that that just had to be done away with. The Apostle Paul wrote about the old covenant in Romans chapter 7. He said, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But those good promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, they weren't a complete way to bring a sinful humanity to God. If they had been, then there wouldn't have been a reason to speak of a coming new framework, which the Jewish prophets did. But the old promises of the law, they... They, they didn't have fault. They weren't faulty because they somehow weren't good. We need to understand this. The faultiness was with the people who couldn't keep the covenant. The old covenant didn't give the people the inward power they needed to keep their end of the relationship. Okay, but then what does it mean by better promises? Does this mean that God made subpar promises at the start? No. Again, I want to emphasize no. No. God's promises throughout the Bible are marvelous. They're gracious. None of them were meant as tricks or given out of insincerity. But there is a question of completeness. This is because the old covenant was always meant to give way to the new covenant. And it didn't just give way, right? The promises weren't just simply thrown out. They were kept. The old covenant was fulfilled because a perfectly faithful Israelite came along. Jesus of Nazareth. He came along and he did keep the old covenant perfectly. And so the fulfillment of all of those promises of land and offspring and flourishing and peace are given to him. And it's only when we're found in Jesus Christ by faith that they're also given to us. We are his heirs of all that he alone has earned as a faithful covenant keeper. Only in Jesus Christ as our representative are God's old covenant promises fulfilled and also new covenant promises accessed. So this is how, this is how we are saved in Christ, in the person of Christ alone, the, the only faithful one. This is how we are saved. This is also how faithful Old Testament figures were saved because none of them could keep the law for themselves either. They were saved through faith in the Christ. Now, we have the benefit of looking back, reading the Gospels, knowing a lot about Jesus, right? The Old Testament people of God, they had to look forward and trust in this shadowy figure who was prophesied at different points throughout the Old Testament, as early as Genesis chapter 3. They trusted that God was making a way, that God would provide a Messiah a priest, and a sacrifice. We need to to keep this in mind, that the covenants were both necessary. They're both good. The old covenant led into the new, and Jesus was the perfectly righteous man who fulfilled the old covenant, and he's the mediator who brings a new covenant that broadens these promises in his name. So the Old Covenant was incomplete. It needed to be fulfilled by Jesus and expanded in a way that God would keep those who are in Jesus, in this family of a new humanity with Jesus as our Father, he would keep us obedient to the covenant with better promises. Better promises like, I'll give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Promises like, the Spirit will help us in our weakness. Promises like, all things are working together for our good. Promises like nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Better promises, fuller promises. Verse 8 clarifies, it says, uh, For he finds fault with the old covenant promises when he says, and there's this long quote, this long quote you see there. It would have been very, very familiar to any Jewish Christians. And it's from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a prophecy of a coming time when a new way of God relating to his people would be unveiled. So let me read those words for us again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the Old Covenant was established with the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which the people pledged themselves to. But over the next thousand years, they continued to commit unfaithfulness to the Covenant. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped created things. They worshipped themselves, all of which God compares to spiritual adultery. So earlier in the book of Jeremiah... Speaking of that spiritual adultery against God, there's this fairly graphic passage. It says, Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. He speaks about the covenant unfaithfulness of his people. See, God knows what it's like to be a rejected lover to have his marriage covenant not only broken, but shattered and ground in the mud. He says, They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no regard for them. Referring to how he left them to exile in Assyria and Babylon rather than preserving them in the land. But what does the forsaken husband do next? He spoke of a coming new covenant, which could not be broken. It would not be like the old covenant in that way. It would be a covenant that would somehow ensure that both parties would continue in it. So let's keep reading verses 10 through 12, which, again, are are part of that uh, Jeremiah 31. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The first difference mentioned in this new covenant, that God's law won't just be sort of in front of his people for them to try to master on their own. Instead, God himself will put his laws on his people's minds and on their hearts. He will write them directly. And this is describing the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives whom God sent to dwell within his people of faith. So what's cool is that this covenant, it says here, this this covenant isn't perpetuated merely through teaching and reminder. Teaching and reminder. You know, the way that um, a lot of cultures... Maintain their traditions You can think about Think about how uh, Let's say an immigrant community Comes over to the US They all live together Their culture is strong They all speak You know you go to that That neighborhood You can only hear their language You see their unique customs everywhere Now their kids The second generation They're also fluent in that language But they also have to navigate The English speaking world what about their kids, the third generation? Well, their knowledge of the old language is likely pretty choppy. And the cultural traditions, they, they sort of become nostalgia. They become quaint things that are fun to do with your grandparents, but not really living sources of identity anymore. And the fourth generation, they, they might not retain any of that identity from the old country. Right? We've all seen that sort of trajectory. So if our knowledge of God is just like that, if it depends only on teaching our relatives and neighbors to know the Lord, well, there's not much power there to maintain covenant faithfulness to God, is there? But thankfully, our gospel is not a mere cultural tradition. It's not a mere subculture that we struggle to pass on. It's the power of God that invades and transforms lives. So every true Christian is a first-generation Christian. I'm not saying they didn't have Christian parents. Maybe they did, and hopefully those parents were, you know, did their kids a great service by modeling the faith and inviting them to, to pray to the living God. And... But there are plenty of kids who grow up in faithful Christian homes and then walk away from it all. There are also plenty of kids who grow up in hell-on-earth sort of scenarios who then, through the faithfulness of outsiders, come to hear the gospel and believe. What makes a Christian is not a tradition maintained. The deciding factor is that the Holy Spirit puts God's laws on their minds and writes them on their hearts. Every true Christian is a first-hander, experiencing covenant with the living God for themselves. They don't need to be told, know the Lord, because every true Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and is growing in that desire for the Lord and, and growing in that knowledge of their Lord. It's true from the least of them to the greatest. Now maybe you feel like the least of them today because you don't feel very faithful in covenant with your God. Maybe your sin patterns are staring you in the face, taunting you. Your failures make you feel like, man, I, I'm just barely hanging on here by a thread. The good news of the new covenant is that your God fulfills both ends of the bargain he promises to us like a wedding vow I will be your God and then his work, by his work within us by his spirit we wake up and respond each day we will be your people so if you're saved under the new covenant God is doing this work in you as the apostle Paul put it in, in Philippians 2 it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure So God has promised to keep us in covenant so we have the the certainty of his promise as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Each new day we can walk in repentance and fresh faith as we trust that he is the one at work in us, keeping us wanting him, growing in us that desire of wanting him, even through the valleys of our, our battles with lingering sin. And you will lose those battles with lingering sin at times. But the new covenant doesn't leave your status in limbo when that happens. It's not like a marriage that's on the ropes every time a harsh word is spoken and then, you know, like years of hurts are just dragged out in the open and thrown back in the person's face. No. The enemy of our souls might do that and he might try to convince you that's how God feels. That's not how our God feels. He promises in verse 12... I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't just give us a way to temporarily cover over our sin. He has fully atoned for our sin, past, present, and future. On the cross, what did Jesus say? He said, it is finished. It's finished. His priestly work of sacrifice ensured that even these future betrayals on our part, they were taken into account even before we were brought into covenant with God they were fully dealt with so he is not surprised by our sin he doesn't pull away from us in our sin though we quite often out of a sense of shame we're the ones to pull away from him we convince ourselves like well God's upset at me and, just, and I better just hide for a little while no then we, we hopefully we come to our senses and we re-engage knowing that God hasn't gone anywhere he's right there he's promised to forgive our iniquities, to be merciful toward us, not to remember our sins. Now, people get caught up on this language of God forgetting our sins, um, asking, well, if he's omniscient, how can he really forget our sins? I would suggest that that might be, you know, we, we might be taking this a little too literally if we convince ourselves, like, no, the text means that God must not even be able to recall any time we sinned. I don't think we would even want that, if you think about it. If that was the case, how could you talk to God about the sin patterns in your life? Right? He, you'd be constantly shocking him, like, you did what? Oh, I I guess I'll have to forgive you again. No, <laughs> that's not what it's like. That's not what God's forgetfulness means here. Um. It's language from the marketplace to to describe how a a debt is dealt with. So let's say you, you owe a big debt to a merchant and he decides to write it off. Well, then it's forgiven and it's put to rest. It's not on the books anymore. It can't be used against you in any way. That's what this is talking about. And God's merciful heart is fully and consciously behind that erasing of the record. So savor these better new covenant promises. Never take them for granted. In Christ, you are bound to God. You are made faithful by his work in you. And nothing, nothing, not even your own foolishness and disobedience can keep you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wonders and the completeness of this new covenant make it seem pointless and even harmful to cling to the old. And, and that's really what the conclusion of our text Highlights in verse 13 It says In speaking of a new covenant He makes the first one obsolete And what is becoming obsolete And growing old Is ready to vanish away So when the book of Hebrews was written The Jewish priests were still offering sacrifices In the temple But le- likely it was less than a decade later uh, In AD 70 All that would be changed Because the Romans would roll through They destroyed the city of Jerusalem They, they destroyed the temple and so that first covenant's obsolescence would be felt by everyone. So if that's the case, and you know there aren't Jewish priests doing sacrifices today, why do we even need to consider these comparisons in the book of Hebrews? Do we? Yes, we do. Because we're still tempted to grasp for those religious props. they may take different forms, but these lesser means of approaching God, they're incomplete. There's such a temptation to latch onto because they're tangible, they're visible. But I want to exhort you, don't fall back on special people and special practices and special places to make you feel okay or to assure you of approval from God. Don't hang on to what's visible or tangible. Instead of what those props were always meant to point to, that we have a high priest the one high priest that we need in Jesus. And he ministers through better promises to assure everyone who trusts in him that no matter what, we will be his people and he will be our God. Our merciful Lord, these promises are are so much better that I, I fear we can't even get our minds around it fully this morning. But we thank you for this glimpse and we ask that you would help us to take to heart the differences here, the security that your people have because of your new covenant where you have promised to forgive our iniquity and to remember our sins no more. And you have promised to, to write your laws on our heads and on our hearts. And so it's, covenant keeping is not some fragile thing that we have to, to work at and work at and work at and try to pass on like a human tradition very spirit is within us changing us making us want the right things and that's true even in times of sin even in the valleys where we feel stuck and we need to to remember your gospel again we know that you're still at work in us you're not done you are faithful to keep covenant even when we are not faithful you make us faithful through the work that you're doing in us by your holy spirit love you, Lord, and we ask that these truths would give us fresh power and energy to pursue you in the ways that are hard, to choose you in the areas where stubborn sin is lingering. The fact that we are accepted, we are known, that we belong, that we are bound in this covenant, Let that be the very thing that helps us defeat our forgiven sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.